We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. I know you'll continue to pray this week for our community and for the families and friends. And Josh said earlier, we're going to come together on Friday night. We're going to remember the cross of Christ next Sunday morning, Easter, the resurrection. This is our hope, brothers and sisters. Three messages here at Grace Community Church over the next week or eight days. Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter. We're going to talk about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. Today, the life of Christ. The entrusted life of Christ. Friday night, the death of Christ for our sins on our behalf. Sunday morning, praise the Lord, the resurrection. Now returning to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. All of this from a passage here in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole passage. It begins in verse 21 and goes through the rest of the chapter of chapter 2. And we'll take a portion of this over the next three messages today and Friday and next Sunday. And then I'll return back to where we left off last week and we'll do a, finish up the book of 1 Peter. So if you'll stand with me in honor of God's word, the entrusted life of Christ. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. While he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> There's little known of the life of Jesus from the time he was 12 up until his public ministry. The Gospels do tell us quite a bit about his birth and a few things about his infancy. Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem to Mary, a virgin. Her fiance, then future husband, was Joseph. There were witnesses to his birth, or at least around the time of his birth, the shepherds who were in the region came to visit him. Mary's relative Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah knew of Jesus' coming birth. They're, they were the parents of John the Baptist. Shortly after Jesus was born, a few days, he was presented at the temple. And Simeon and Anna recognized him as being from God. And then sometime in his early childhood, Jesus and his parents got a visit from wise men, seekers from the east, Herod heard about this. He was jealous, so he sought to kill Jesus, causing Jesus and his parents to flee to Egypt. Shortly after that, Herod died, and Joseph and Mary and Jesus returned to Galilee, and Jesus was raised in a town of Nazareth. At about 12 years old, Jesus and his parents and travelers went to the temple. And we learn at that time 
<clears throat> that Jesus knew that he had to be about his father's business. And he wasn't talking about Joseph, who was a carpenter. He was talking about his heavenly father. So from that time, 12 years old, up until Jesus' public ministry at about 30, we don't really know anything about his life. But at that point, 30 years old, about four gospel accounts <clears throat> tell us <clears throat> quite a bit about the ministry and the teaching of Jesus and about his death and his resurrection. It would take three years of sermons for us to cover the three years of Jesus' public life in the ministries. And, and that would feel like an overview. So how would we summarize the life of of Jesus on a Palm Sunday before we look at his death and resurrection how would we summarize the whole life of Jesus from Peter we would summarize it this way Jesus lived an entrusted life Jesus lived a life given over to God he lived a life given over to God <clears throat> to accomplish something for us something for us to receive. And then he lived an entrusted life given over to God as an example for us to follow. In verse 23 that we read, the apostle Peter says that Jesus continued entrusting himself in his suffering and in his obedience. Jesus obeyed God and his obedience brought him suffering. If we ever have a notion that our obedience will lead us out of suffering, we need to go back and look at Jesus. The obedience of Jesus actually brought him suffering. And yet in his suffering, Jesus continued to obey. If we ever think that in suffering, we have a break. In Jesus' suffering, he pushed through in obedience. So it is in this context of suffering and obedience that Peter tells us he continued entrusting himself to God. The whole life of Jesus, from the incarnation to the crucifixion, was a life of suffering. We often think that Jesus had a great life up until it went wrong at the cross. His whole life from the incarnation, that's a word we use when we talk about Jesus taking on flesh, in flesh, incarnate, in flesh. Jesus took it on to himself. That's his birth. His whole life from that point to his crucifixion was a life of suffering. Verse 21, Peter tells us, Christ also suffered. It's a theme throughout 1 Peter. Suffering is a theme in the whole letter of 1 Peter, and it, is, it was a reality throughout the whole life of Christ. Jesus Christ, before he became a man and before he took on the name Jesus, is the eternal Son of God, God the Son. He's God. And then, miracles, of all miracles, he took humanity to himself, meaning he became a man so that he exists as one person with a divine and a human nature. That's the incarnation, taking on the human nature. To take on human nature for Jesus meant that he had to lay aside the glories of heaven. 
because he was physically on this earth as a physical man. He did not lay aside his divine nature. He, he retained his divine nature and then he took human nature as well to himself. But to do that, he had to lay aside the glories of heaven to be here on this earth. So he was born into this world. And that required great humility. And the kind of humility and the kind of obedience that can only be called suffering. I guess it's about your starting point, right? If you're born into this world, you didn't have an eternal starting point like Jesus. And so you think, well, I can, you know, we can advance up. We can move into another class. We can get a better job. Jesus' starting point was not that. His starting point was eternity with the Father. And so to be here among us took on great humility. And it took him great humility and obedience that can only for Jesus be called suffering. Jesus experienced as a man the humility and the evil of this world. He experienced the brokenness of this world. Jesus lived in a body of decay like ours. He experienced the limitations of this broken world. Jesus experienced the demands of voluntary obedience to God. He, he experienced the demands of perfect obedience to God. Jesus experienced the ongoing temptation and the pressure, Jesus lived under the pressure of constant resistance mode. He never yielded to temptation. He was always in fight mode. Verse 22 says he had no sin. When we yield to temptation, we're trying to relieve the pressure of temptation. Jesus never relieved it. He, he fought it the whole time. That was part of his suffering. And he experienced rejection from his people. They were his people. He loved them. He told them the truth. And yet they misunderstood him and his own family for a while did not believe him. This too was a suffering. He experienced the Probably most of all, we would say, he experienced the mental and the emotional anguish of knowing infinitely more than we could ever know the depths of evil. And the mental and emotional anguish of being aware that he was going to bear in his body the wrath of God against our sin. The mental and emotional anguish that he lived with, that's seen most clearly in the night before his death when he's weeping and calling out to God and sweating drops of blood over this pain and anguish of knowing he is about to bear the sins of the world. That was suffering. And then he was rejected, he was reviled, he was beaten. He did not return any threats. He did not revile in return. And he willingly went to the cross. And there he bore it. 
the, pun- the punishment against human sin, the wrath of God against sin, the weight of the curse of sin, the physical death of crucifixion, all right there on the cross. Jesus' whole life from beginning to end was a form of suffering. Jesus lived in the valley of the shadow of the cross. And it's right there. In that context that we read, Jesus kept, continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Did Jesus have any joy at all in his life? Yes, he did. But his joy was in that which would not disappoint. His joy was in doing the will of the Father. The joy of Jesus was in the outcome of his suffering. The outcome of his suffering was set before him. The outcome of his suffering, which was the work of God, the atonement for sin, a redeemed people, an eternity with his people, that was his joy. It was was out there in front of him. And for all of that, he entrusted himself. To God, he entrusted himself for us that we would be right with God. He entrusted himself for us that we would follow his example. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. Verse 23, again, we're going to read the passages several times because they need to wash over us today. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. To entrust, it's a word that we don't often use. We use this word a lot, trust. But to entrust means to trust with. It means to trust people. And therefore, when you trust someone, you will entrust something to that person. It's an entrustment. When you entrust something, you're handing it over, whether it be a thing or your very self. I entrust myself to you. Or delivering up. I'm delivering this up to someone or something. To entrust. I'm committing it. I'm giving it over. To entrust has submission with it. When you entrust to God, there's a submission to it, to God. We could say that entrusting is trust in action. We could say that entrusting is the mental work. To entrust is the mental work of trusting. To entrust is also, there's a physical level to it as well, as we see in Jesus. Jesus entrusted himself to God the Father. We see Jesus entrusting himself in prayer. We see Jesus entrusting himself each new day. We see Jesus, when we read the Gospels, entrusting himself in each new opportunity for obedience. When Jesus entrusted himself to God, he entrusted his body, his bodily life, the existence of his own flesh and blood. He gave that over to God. We insist that Christianity has a physicality to it. Because Jesus Christ physically, literally, bodily took on the curse of sin on the cross and literally, literally, physically, bodily rose from the dead. He entrusted himself bodily to God. He entrusted his will to do the will of the Father. Everything he wanted and desired, 
His choosing, all of it, entrusted. He entrusted every situation. The time, his times and the time of each day. The crowds wanted him in one place. He said, no, that's not my father's will. I'm going here today, now. Can't you stay? No, it's time to go. His time, everything entrusted to God. All of his activities, all of his events. He entrusted his disciples to God. It's the only way he couldn't fear about his disciples. It's the only way he didn't live in fear that his disciples were going to fail. He said, these disciples do not look promising. I must give them over to God. He gave his disciples to the care of God. To the, he gave the, the future of the Christian faith rested in what he taught the disciples. And so he had to give them to God. He entrusted them. He entrusted his enemies to God. How do we know? Because he did not revile back. He did not threaten them when they threatened him. Can you imagine the eternal son of God being crucified he could have blinked and they would have been banished but he entrusted them to God because verse 23 he knew he knew he knew that God judges justly Jesus knew the father would do all things right and he would always do the right thing Jesus knew that the Father would make sure that in time, in time, in time, the right thing would be done. Jesus knew that the Father would punish the wicked and the evil justly. Jesus knew that the Father who judges justly would redeem the righteous on the merit of Jesus himself. On the merit of Jesus' accomplishment on the cross and in the resurrection for them. By his grace alone, which can only be just because justice was carried out on the cross of Christ. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew God being just may intervene now in ways that are evident to us all. Or that he may wait until another day in another providential way to do his work. But he knew that he would always do it because he judges justly. So it is this vision, this vision of God, this grand reality-based vision of God the Father that motivated God the Son, Jesus Christ, to entrust himself to him. This trust and this entrusting to the Father is what kept Jesus obedient in his suffering. It's what kept him in that pursuit to accomplish the will of the Father obedient all the way to the cross. 
Jesus lived the entrusted life. Read the Gospels. Read at least one Gospel this week. At least one. It's, it's Easter week. And when you do, you'll see it on display over and over. Jesus entrusting to God. With that point, I would strongly urge you to consider Christ. Just start right there. Just look at Him. Just think on Him. Just read about Him and let your mind take Him in and watch Him. Whether He's getting up to walk or talking or healing or loving or feeding or praying or traveling, just watch Him as the, as the one who's constantly entrusting it all to God. That's the first thing. Jesus entrusted Himself to God. The second thing to see is this. Jesus entrusted Himself to God for us. For us. Verse 21. Christ also suffered for you. The, the for us, the for you language of the gospel of the New Testament speaks of two things. Number one, substitution. Number two, imputation. I'll explain. Substitution. It means that what Jesus did, he did in our place. He suffered, he died for us. The incarnation was for us. The whole thing was for us. And he died in our place. He died for our sins. He bore the wrath of God that was against us and our sin. He was obedient in our place. He suffered for us. Substitution. And the other word is imputation. That means his is counted as ours. Substitution, he took our place. Imputation, his is counted as ours. What he accomplished in his suffering is counted as ours. What did he accomplish in his suffering? He accomplished the payment, the penalty, the removal of sin. He accomplished reconciliation to God. What did he accomplish in the suffering of his obedient life? He accomplished righteousness before God. And imputation means that his obedient life, righteousness before God, is counted as ours. I am not righteous, and yet I am righteous. I have no shred, not one ounce of self-righteousness, and you don't either. So how in the world do we stand right before God because Christ's righteousness through his perfect obedience and the resurrection from the dead is counted as ours credited as ours it's like you logged on to your bank account and boom there's a deposit that you didn't make for a billion 
in billions of dollars, infinite wealth. And you say, where'd that come from? And so we stand before God with our suffering Savior standing right next to us. And the Lord says, Almighty God, the one who judges justly, says, come in. And we say, how? And Jesus says, look, I've made you. I've counted you. I've put my righteousness on you. It's yours. But it's not. I wasn't right. I know. That's not the point. It was mine. I'm giving it to you. And the forgiveness of sins, it's all accomplished and imputed to us. The continued entrustment of Jesus while he was on earth was for the purpose of getting himself through this suffering that he might be our substitute and that he might impute to us all that he accomplished on the cross. It was for us. By faith, receive this. By faith, really. See, surely I've got to do something to make up for my sins. Penance. No. Repentance. Not penance. Repentance. Repentance is to turn and trust. Penance is to try to make up. You can't do penance. You can try, but it'll lead you nowhere. And you say, well, that's for that other part of the Christian faith. We don't do that. Oh, we do it every day. It's a free gift. Receive it. Repent, turn from your sin and self, turn to Christ and receive this gift by faith. Look at Him, the entrusted life, and then trust Him because the entrusted life was for you. And then third, the entrusted life of Jesus is an example for us to follow. Now let me read again. I'm going to read two places. I'm going to start where we just read, read a few verses, and then I'm going to go to chapter 4 and verse 19, and we're going to put them together, okay? Verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So there's the call. Trust Christ. Repent, believe, rest the full weight of the forgiveness of your sins and your right standing before God onto Christ. Rest it right there. Rest in His accomplishments. Trust Him. And then, entrust your whole life to Him. Entrust your body to Christ as a living sacrifice. Your physical, 
and mental self entrust it to God as a living sacrifice. Entrust your soul, that immaterial part, entrust it to God. Entrust your past. If you are haunted by the sins of your past, entrust your past to God. Christ forgives you and will cleanse you and will make you new. Trust Him and entrust your past. Give it to Him. Give it to Him. Throw it on Him. Take it so He can cleanse you and set you free. Entrust your present today, this moment, to God. This is yours. Entrust your future. Tomorrow. Next week. Next year. We don't know what's going to happen. So we have to entrust it. God, it's yours. Entrust it once for all. Like make a decision. I'm giving myself over to you, God. And then entrust him every five or ten seconds. And every new morning, before your feet land on the floor, I entrust it to you. Entrust it to God in prayer. Entrust to God in obedience. Entrust to God in every circumstance. Entrust to God in every relationship. Entrust to God for holiness. Entrust to God for ministry. Entrust to God as a way to follow Jesus who entrusted himself. So when we suffer in any way due to any form of faithfulness to Christ, we will remain in faith, hope, and love only by entrusting our souls to a faithful creator and redeemer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus who showed us how to do this because we don't know how to do this. So would you help us today to look at Christ? Would you help us today to see him on every page of the Gospels and see in him the faithful one, the true one? And teach us to be like him. 
first teach us to receive from him the gift of salvation. And then to be like him as we entrust ourselves to you. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.